I don't want to minimize the virus by any means, because there will be people hospitalized. There will be people who succumb to this virus. But the hope is we can minimize that by our extraordinary vaccination rate in Vermont and ameliorate whatever happens through the month of January, which will be where things really start to happen with Omicron. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. For this year-end Vermont Conversation, we spend the hour discussing the past, present, and future of the COVID-19 pandemic with Vermont Health Commissioner Dr. Mark Levine. In just under two years, there have been 63,000 cases of COVID-19 in Vermont, and 468 people have died from the disease. Dr. Mark Levine has helped lead Vermont's response to the pandemic. Levine is a graduate of the University of Rochester Medical School and was a professor of medicine at the University of Vermont and associate dean for graduate medical education before Governor Phil Scott named him Vermont's Commissioner of Health in March 2017. Dr. Levine, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Great to be here. Thank you. In the two years that you've been overseeing the response to the pandemic here in Vermont, there have been a number of inflection points. There have been new variants, the advent of vaccines, changes in guidance about how to protect ourselves. With the advent, uh, with the arrival of the Omicron variant, it seems we're at another one of those inflection points. And uh, I wonder if you could start by just talking about where you see the pandemic right now and uh, if, in fact, we are at an inflection point and, and what you see ahead. Sure. Because I agree with you, um, there is no shortage of inflection points in the last two years. The media keep trying to remind me that we are entering year three, which sounds just beyond what I can even begin to think about. But Omicron is an inflection point, and in some ways good, in some ways bad. We've been really forecasting to the entire state that we are going to see marked increases in case counts with the arrival of Omicron. It is just so infectious. It transmits so easily from one person to four or five people or more. We just got a report from the CDC from Nebraska showing how in a family, basically the index case was discovered and between 33 and 73 hours all four other members of the family uh, became positive. Uh, So it's a very brief window of time. It's very infectious. And and is that so different? How is that different from what Delta would have done in that family? It's supposed to be about twice the infectivity of Delta, which of course was twice everything previous. So it keeps getting exponential, if you will. But having said that, we are really making a significant effort to distract people from case numbers. Because one thing about the constant ability of viruses to mutate and to cause new variants is that the virus wants to survive above all other things. So most of the new variants aren't uh, causing more severe illness or more lethality. They're actually just causing more infectivity. We're finding with Omicron that this is a milder virus. If we believe everything coming from South Africa, the UK, and the early experience in our country, the cases are milder. They're involving people who have been vaccinated. 
but the vaccines are doing just what they're promising to do, which is not reduce necessarily your ability to test positive or become infected, but reducing your uh, ability to get so sick that you'd need to be hospitalized or go to an ICU. And that's exactly what's happening uh, is what we're finding uh, around the world and now starting in this country. So focusing on cases, um, makes it look like some wildfire is wildly out of control. But the reality is if more people than not are getting colds and mild flu-like symptoms and better in a few days, um, that's adding to the immunity of the population at large. Putting that together with vaccine-mediated immunity, getting people to a level of immunity where this will become for our future a more endemic virus. It's part of the background, just like a common cold. And hopefully nothing more serious will come. But I don't want to minimize Omicron. We're going to see a huge spike in cases. The large numbers alone will mean more people may end up in the hospital, but not as a percentage or a rate, just the fact that there are more numbers. So we do need to get through this. Uh, and then I'd like people to think about what the flu has been like every year since they were born. You know, the flu is something that we don't enter the flu season with tremendous fear and trepidation. We don't disrupt our lives in remarkable ways. We hopefully get vaccinated and we get through the flu season. Some of us may get a mild flu-like illness. Some who aren't vaccinated may get a more severe illness. And there are some who are very vulnerable that even with vaccine may get a severe illness. But we kind of see that happen year after year after year. And we've adapted to sort of living our lives knowing that every year there's going to be a flu season, with, of course, the exception of last year, where everybody was isolated, masking, etc. And we saw hardly any flu at all. So that's how I see um, the best case scenario for how Omicron will actually get through us and then what our future with the SARS-CoV-2 virus will be like. It seems this is, uh, you've avoided comparing this to the cold and flu until now because we don't mask up. We don't social distance for the flu. We live our lives and hope we, and normally most people don't get the flu. But You've shied away from saying what you just said. So I'm wondering what has changed and also um, the severity, even with boosted people of Omicron. Are you saying even that is comparable to a flu? Well, I don't want to compare a virus to a virus. I'm just trying to use that example as something that is endemic in our population. It's been around for generations and centuries. And we survive and live through it. And uh, most of the time, it doesn't disrupt our lives tremendously. Um, I am hoping after Omicron that that is a little bit of what life looks like with this newer virus. And I'm only using our accumulating science and data that's happened really since the beginning of the month of December, because, you know, this just happened in South Africa, late November, early December. And we've got, you know, about a month's work worth of experience to draw upon. So the science is, is accumulating rapidly. Um, I don't want to minimize the virus by any means, because there will be people hospitalized. 
there will be people who succumb to this virus. But the hope is we can minimize that by our extraordinary vaccination rate in Vermont, hopefully by an even more extraordinary booster rate in Vermont, which we're you know, really pushing to get as high as possible uh, and, and sort of um, ameliorate whatever happens over the time course uh, through the month of January, which will be where things really start to happen with Omicron. What do we know now about breakthroughs, breakthrough infections with people who have been vaccinated but not boosted? That's one category. And then those who have been boosted. Um, certainly anecdotally, you know, I know I'm hearing of friends who've been boosted and infected. So what do we know about this? Yeah, so we know a lot about uh, the pre-Omicron. We know that breakthrough cases have occurred in about two and a half percent of the fully vaccinated population. Hospitalizations and deaths, a very, very small percentage of that 2.4 percent. Now, when Which we say great. fully fully vaxxed, are we including boosted or is that so definition? That's, that's just fully vaxxed with or without boosters. We don't have as much rapidly uh, analyzable data on uh, the boosted population at this point in time in terms of cases. I can give you some very interesting data that we presented at a couple of the press conferences regarding hospitalization and death. And clearly, looking at the last six weeks, which is really Delta, because you know Omicron is just entering our state, um, looking at Delta, which has been really the most severe part of the pandemic for everybody, including Vermont, you have a 23-fold risk of being hospitalized if you are unvaccinated compared to a boosted population. And you have a six-time uh, increase in your risk of being hospitalized compared to a, just a fully vaccinated population. So that right there tells us that boosting is really, really important. The death data almost mirrors that, 23 times and four times. So what does that mean? It means that really, when I've been saying every week that you are not fully protected if you have not been boosted, I mean what I say, because the impact of boosting is so substantial on reducing your risk of serious outcomes. So People don't like the term booster because it makes them think that, well, either number one, the vaccine never worked at all, which is far from true, or number two, that this is just an endless cycle and cascade of getting shots and when am I going to stop getting shots? But the reality is they should consider it as a three-dose primary series of vaccine. So if you got the messenger RNA vaccines, which the majority of Vermonters got, 96% of the vaccinated, that's Pfizer um, and Moderna. Pfizer and Moderna, then you basically should consider that a three-dose series. And the reality is when they came out, nobody knew when you should get dose one, dose two, dose three. So we kind of got them the way we got them as the data accumulated. The hope now going into the future is that you would have either an annual booster or maybe even beyond that, less than that, because of the fact that we just don't know. We don't have data for people a year after their booster uh, to, to understand that. 
We know we get a flu shot every year, but we may not know beyond that. But boosting is so critical that I like to say to people, you are not fully protected and you are not up to date on your immunization if you have not gotten the three shots for the Pfizer and Moderna. I know that in the, uh, because Omicron kind of has hit Europe first and some of the early data we have is out of Europe and Denmark, they found that people who were double vaccinated but not boosted had no more protection against Omicron than someone who was unvaccinated. And I don't know, is that still your take on it? And, and if so, if Vermont has just 55% of the population is boosted. So that leaves a very large portion of our population that is, you know, essentially going to be like an unvaccinated person facing Omicron. Yes. So 55% from age five and above. So keep that in mind. It's a little higher when you look at it from higher ages. But the bottom line is what is the outcome measure you're looking at when you look at Denmark? Is it the outcome of serious disease or is it the outcome of getting an infection at all? Because I think what we're learning with Omicron is the likelihood of you getting an infection at all is very high, no matter what your status of vaccination. But the take-home message has to be the likelihood of you're getting into the hospital, dying, or getting an ICU bed is much, much lower if you've gotten fully vaccinated. And if it's time, you've gotten boosted. Hmm. It seems to me we're, we're kind of changing course here from uh, managing the pandemic as a public matter to a private matter. And by that, I mean, we've gone from these highly public uh, you know, management scenarios of mass vaccination sites. And of course, in the early days, establishing field hospitals, which did not end up getting used, to now we're talking about home tests and convalescing at home. Um, and where we may not have any report, you, you may, people may not report positive infections. So we are, in fact, going to lose count of the infection rate. Is that where you see this going? And, and if so, <laughs> the rapid home tests are the key to this strategy. And as you well know, they're running out within literally minutes of becoming available. Yes. So the days of case counts being the primary endpoint to look at are over for sure. We really have always been laser focused on the healthcare system, preserving the capacity of our healthcare system, making sure that we know day to day, hour to hour, where we are in terms of hospital beds, ICU beds, et cetera. So we continue to be very focused on that, even though I know um, both local and national media are always focused on case counts and how extraordinary they may or may not be getting at any point in time. We will lose a lot of information on that with the advent of home at-home antigen and PCR testing for that matter, but more antigen than PCR at home. And the reality is concepts like percent positivity, which really have been very helpful in managing the pandemic, will not become calculable because we won't have a denominator anymore and we won't really understand. We'll only know probably the more positive tests. The thesis is, if a person is actually going to report their test result to the health department, 
they're probably more likely to report a positive result than a negative result, which is great because that gives us a good idea of how many positive results there are out there, but it makes us lose a denominator in terms of calculating a percent positivity because we have no idea <coughs> how many people did a test and found nothing. So you're right, we are transitioning to that. And there's a really important public health reason for us to do that. Even when you have the best operating PCR system in the world and get results back in 12 to 36 hours, you have a lot of people who aren't finding out for longer than that. Even 12 to 36 hours is a long time when it means your potential to infect somebody else before you knew that you actually had the disease. An antigen test, an at-home test, gives you immediate results, and you can make immediate, important life decisions based on that. So we are really in an era now where we want those decisions on a personal level to be made quickly, whether the person has symptoms or not, just so they are, understand where they stand, where their family stands, where their community stands based on their positive or negative result, and also what they can do in their life. You know, going to work that day, going to school that day, um, going to an event uh, that has a lot of people at it. Um, these decisions will become much easier. But you pointed out the Achilles heel in December of 2021, which is we don't have access to a supply chain that will accomplish every goal immediately. We've heard the president talk about half a billion tests becoming uh, available next year. Well, that isn't going to be January 1. That's going to take some time. And even half a billion tests, when you think about the population of the country, it's not a lot of tests per person. So we need to come a lot further than that. And we will. We are uh, working with supply chains now that we have been really good to either stumble upon or be advised about. Um, and we're trying to get antigen tests from literally every quarter that we can. And we'll continue to do that. We would hope post-holidays and post-Omicron surge, there'll be a little less demand on a little less of a frenetic basis compared to where we are now. But the reality is we still have PCR testing. It's just not very good for a holiday scenario when you have major things you want to go to and you have to time it very precisely. And it's certainly not great when you're in the middle of a big surge um, or at the beginning of a big surge. So we do have issues, but the reality is this will become the sort of state of the art as we get into the next year. I know that people are often uh, mining um, what you say for the, the practical takeaway. And I think for a lot of people, it's, okay, so does this mean I want to get together with six, 10 odd people? If we all rapid test that day and we're all negative, we're okay to get together and not mask. What is your answer to that? Yeah, I would, I would use the rule of threes and say, fantastic, you all did that test. So at least for the few hours after you did the test, you're good to go in terms of infection. I'd like to know that those six to 10 people were vaccinated, even better boosted. And I'd like to know if we're not going to be sitting at a table eating constantly, that maybe we would use a mask if it's multiple households getting together, use a mask at the times we're not actively eating and drinking. 
Um, but you said maybe that together you, would work well. Now you said maybe use a mask. Would you say you should definitely use a mask when you're not eating? Yeah, if it's not just your immediate family, but it's uh, a gathering of multiple households, I would definitely say use the mask right now because we are in an Omicron early part of a surge. Um, that doesn't mean for the rest of your life, every time you get together with people and you're not eating, you need to wear a mask. But certainly now, as the virus is coming through and it's a respiratory virus in the wintertime, definitely. Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about mask policy. Um, the Vermont chapter of the American College of Physicians urged Governor Scott to require masking indoors. And two former Vermont health commissioners, your predecessors, Jan Carney and Harry Chen, have said they support a mask mandate in the current surge. And Dr. Chen said, quote, to stand by and watch these numbers and watch the stress on our healthcare system and do nothing in terms of intervening. I mean, it doesn't make sense, close quote. How do you respond? Yeah, I have tremendous respect for everyone that you've just mentioned. Um, and the reality is um, they are giving very sound, fundamental public health advice. What happens though in a pandemic, as we've all learned, is that public health doesn't call all the shots. Public health doesn't make a unilateral decision and everyone falls into place. Otherwise we'd have a whole country that had mask mandates. And we reality is we have a half a dozen states plus the District of Columbia having mask mandates and nobody else. In fact, at least in Vermont, we have the very strongest amount of recommendation coming from the very top within the health department and within state government, telling people you should be wearing a mask when you're indoors in public places. So we have all of that. We don't have the absolute requirement that a mandate would bring. The reality is um, in the last several weeks, we have seen hospitalizations markedly decrease while we're still in the era of Delta. Now, what did we have happen in Vermont? We did have a new law passed that allowed municipalities to in, uh, invoke mask mandates if they chose. We have somewhere in the 10 to 20 municipalities that have done that and a number that have gone the opposite direction. Uh, and that to me can't explain any change in what's going on on the ground. So our hospitalizations have gone down even though there was no state mask mandate and there was certainly no uniform mandate across all regions and across the state. So what happens with decisions of this magnitude where you're actually telling people what they need to do is that we weigh a lot of things in the balance. Some of those things are very familiar to people, like what is the state of their mental health? How is substance use going in the state of Vermont? Are we seeing impacts of severely regulating people's lives on them or on the economy or on the education system? Are we protecting our students and allowing them to get uh, in-person learning as much as possible? And where is the public's appetite for getting very aggressive or becoming more lax? Clearly, when you look around the state of Vermont, pre-Omicron, I think you will agree that 
people were actually enjoying a lot more freedom than they'd ever had during the pandemic. People were starting to go to larger events, many of which required vaccination, which was good. Restaurants were filling up again. Bars were filling up again. People were going to gyms. The uh, retail establishments were all doing fine. But um, when, when, when you speak of the public appetite, yes. so much of that is influenced by the leadership, by the messaging from the leadership. Yes. And so, you know, I see it in my community. The Mad River Valley towns, for example, voted to have a mask mandate. So when I go into stores there, and I did this last weekend, everybody's masked. There's no questions asked. In Waterbury, where I live, the select board voted not to have a mask mandate. So when I go into the grocery store, I would say about half the people are masked. So appetite isn't something that just wells up from inside. It's influenced by the rules. Um, And I guess the question, my question is, you know, early on in this, Vermont did so well by saying we are following the science. And um, now the science is pretty clear that masking does reduce transmission. It's a key mitigation strategy. But how do we say we're still following the science when we just leave it to what you feel like as to whether you do, whether you mask up and protect yourself and your neighbors? Right. It's the difference between a strong recommendation and a mandate. And the reality is, we actually know from pre-Delta that mask mandates were successful. Um, We don't know during the era of Delta, and believe me, I've looked at a number of the states that have had mask mandates uh, and tried to correlate what happened in their populations with having or not having a mandate in terms of their surge or whatever in Delta. And some of them look like the mask mandate may have done something very positive. Others, I can't find a correlation at all. All of the uh, state health officials I've talked to in all of the states were very uh, specific about saying enforcement was impossible, that the amount of um, disputes and dissension was increased by having the mandate because of the polarizations and politicizations in our societies currently. And they were having a lot of trouble sort of working with the population, uh, knowing that there was very little enforcement that could be had. Uh, So that's sort of a a little bit of statement about the public appetite, if you are, if you will. But I'm also saying it's not just public appetite, it's all these other factors that I had mentioned earlier in terms of mental health and what have you, that really uh, make something like this either successful or not successful, palatable or not palatable. Um, we're gonna, I, I, I do think there's a little bit of, if I could use the term magical thinking, uh, that if only we had done the mass mandate, everything would have changed. Uh, because we're seeing changes now, uh, as I mentioned in hospitalizations and what have you, that are very positive that occurred without having an actual mandate. Um, and it's just a noteworthy statement. It's very hard in real time to, uh, to correlate a lot of things. Dr. Levine, what would it take for you to recommend that we impose stricter or mandatory mitigation med- measures uh, such as masking? Believe me, public health is always recommending uh, pretty strict measures, if you will. So, you know, masking alone, 
mask mandates, uh, the power of vaccine mandates. Uh, those are all, I think, effectively shown public health measures. But again, public health doesn't exist in a vacuum. Public health isn't the only leadership in the state. And there are many other factors that have to be factored in across all sectors of society, across all sectors of state government. And that fortunately, we have very capable leadership in our state that does factor all of that in as they make decisions. So public health is at the table all of the time. It doesn't mean that every single public health recommendation is taken to the utmost degree. And anybody who's been a health commissioner or a state health official in any state understands that dynamic very well. And, uh, and it's actually a very rational, pragmatic uh, understanding to have because we shouldn't be calling the shots for everything. Yes, our job is to protect and preserve the health of all Vermonters, but think about it. <clears throat> we say a lot of things about our environment and how environmental health impacts uh, individuals. We say a lot of things about various infections and sources of infection forgetting about the respiratory viruses um, that impact all sectors of society. We talk a lot about what we need to do in uh, alcohol and drug abuse, substance abuse programs. And we do a lot of things that are good, but at the same time, most of the things we're doing are balanced with lots of other considerations across state government. Well, picking on that, running with that theme, the CDC has just um, revised its guidance on how long people need to quarantine, uh, cutting it in half from 10 days to five days. Some critics are saying that's politics and business, not public health speaking. What do you say? It would be hard for me to say there wasn't an element of politics and business knowing how this came out rather abruptly. Um, in fact, the governor was on a phone call with the White House and all the other governors at noon on the day that this came out at 5 p.m. and had heard from Dr. Lewalensky that um, they had nothing new planned at that point in time. Uh, <laughs> a lot happened I, in the overnight, I guess. <laughs> yes, and I've spoken to members of the CDC very recently uh, who are rapidly putting together some of the guidance that's needed because they were caught a little bit uh, short on that as well. So clearly, politics and economics do make a, uh, make a difference at times. However, there is science to back up some of what the CDC has uh, proposed, and they have informed us that they will be showing us that science and releasing it all so that we can all analyze it and make the right decisions. I'd like people to know that we in Vermont were already thinking along the same lines, not the precise guidance the CDC has come out with. And now we need to sort of reconcile what we were thinking and why we were thinking it with what the CDC has done. Because you'll recall it many times in this pandemic, Vermont has actually led. We led with how to get out of quarantine early using a testing strategy. We led with what does contact tracing mean in terms of the duration of contact with a person over a 24 hour interval uh, being 15 minutes, not just 15 minutes at one time. So we were going to be leading in this as well, but uh, circumstances uh, got the CDC to come out quickly with it. So we'll be coming up with our own Vermont policy uh, over these next uh, several days, I'm sure. 
Around the country, there have been attacks on public health officials and uh, right on up to Dr. Fauci, who now has to travel with armed guards. Um, have you experienced any threats? You know, we have had just the best support from Vermonters throughout this pandemic. I think we've really stood out in that regard. Uh, and even though you may observe 50% of people masking in one community versus another, the reality is we wouldn't have gotten to where we've gotten to in this pandemic without the support of Vermonters. So by and large, I can say that I've got tremendous, tremendous support from them. Have I gotten an occasional threat? Have I gotten uh, negative feedback on things? Of course, that will happen to anyone in a public position. But I'm aware, unfortunately, because the community of state health officials is rather small. There's only 50 states plus territories that plus the District of Columbia. Well, the number of health officials that I knew in the beginning of the pandemic that are still with me now is vanishingly small. Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of turnover. I've had colleagues in other states who have had people camped out on their lawn. I've had people concerned about their family because of the level of threats. Um, it's, as you know, been a pandemic that's not gone that easily in many parts of the country with lots of polarizations, uh, uh, as we all are aware. Uh, Vermont has been by and large protected. And I believe Vermonters are willing to listen to us about the science. We present the data to them in a very transparent way. And we make decisions, I think, in a very compassionate manner that allows people to understand that we're not just throwing something at them, but we thought about it a lot and looked at the uh, benefits and risks and weighed them all in the balance. So I take it from your answer, you have received threats. Um, have any of these threats risen to the level of needing of you asking for police protection or being concerned about your family's safety? Uh, no, we obviously they've been discussed at the levels with public safety, but. Um, have not gotten there. And I am happy to say most of that was much earlier in the pandemic uh, at a time when I think people's lives were more strictly um, affected by the decisions that we all made in state government. Have any local officials in Vermont been threatened that you're aware of public health officials? Not that I'm aware of, but you have to keep in mind our, our public health structure in Vermont. It's a very centralized health department. We have 14 district offices that have um, uh, leadership in those offices supervising the work, but it's all coming from the central office. So um, they, may, they may be very visible members of their community, but it's usually they're very positively viewed visible members of the community because they're involved in so many of the public health efforts that we have uh, over the course of time. Um, you know, earlier this month, uh, Governor Scott and his chief of staff, Jason Gibbs, lashed out at a public health expert from Dartmouth, Ann Sassen, who has often been critical of Vermont's uh, policies. Um, should Vermont officials be criticizing public health experts who question Vermont's policies? Yeah, I, I can say that um we should have everything we do be critically appraised. So if we make a decision and people critically appraise it and have a reason to disagree with it, 
either because we did something or didn't do something. I mean, that is their prerogative. I will say it's pretty hard to call the shots when you're not really running the show. Um, so uh, it's an easy thing to sort of state what's what works, what doesn't work. Uh, why are you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Um, and it doesn't really integrate into what I've tried to present during our conversation today, which is it's a very integrative process, taking into consideration lots of considerations that um, people may not have thought about. Um, certainly, uh, I don't want to comment on whatever happened with uh, the governor's staff. The, the reality is uh, everyone has their right to their own opinion. Everyone has the right to try to support their opinion with the appropriate science and data and have a civil conversation about it. Um, you uh, people have come to know you as the health commissioner, but uh, many, many people, particularly in Chittenden County, you know you as their doctor. Um, you've been a long time. Uh, it, it, you're an internal medicine uh, doctor, is it? Correct. So have you ever had to offer guidance as a health commissioner that you wouldn't offer as a private physician? Huh. Uh, you know, this may not be the answer you're looking for, but it's very challenging when a Vermonter communicates with me as they do all the time and wants very individualized advice. And I know nothing about their whole medical background, uh, their, their family, their social background, anything to, to really be precise in the way I guide them. So, so I try to guide them from a public health standpoint, but letting them know that they do have others who are responsible for their ongoing medical care so they can weigh that in the balance. And that person probably has more insight into them than I do. Uh, but I'm able to still offer a fair amount of advice because it usually relates to all of the things we've been talking about in the course of managing a pandemic and trying to navigate that as an individual citizen. So I'm able to do that pretty well. The, 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 one of the big appeals of transitioning from my practice world to this public health world is that I can now impact a large population. If you look at things like what we call lifestyle behavior change, you know, how much does somebody drink or smoke or, or eat or exercise or any of those important things that all feed into how long we may live and how healthy we may be along that time course, um, I can influence an individual patient sometimes in one visit but more commonly over the course of many visits, sometimes a decade, that person may suddenly quit smoking 10 years later as the accumulated impact of all the discussions we've been having, all of the tricks of the trade I've been trying to share with them in, in their journey. Whereas as a health commissioner, I can, as we did in two legislative sessions ago, be supportive of and fundamentally involved in a trifecta of uh, interventions that the legislature enacted and the governor signed regarding vaping and smoking, where we enacted uh, a new age range for purchase of vaping and combustible cigarettes to 21. We uh, had more of a tax 
uh, hitting people where it hurts on the vaping front. And we affected the ability of youth to purchase these kinds of uh, materials on the internet. I impacted a tremendous number of people. I'm not trying to be grandiose here, uh, but I impacted a tremendous amount of people. And potentially decades from now, we'll see the rates of lung cancer, cardiovascular disease, emphysema, what have you, improve in a concerted fashion because of those interventions. Um, so it's very challenging to you know, separate myself because I love the interaction with one-on-one -on -one and impacting a person's life. But I also really cherish the opportunity to work across state government and in public health to impact perhaps a generation's uh, course of events as things go on. Uh, since you raise the issue of long-term and looking at the long view, let's talk about long COVID, which really seems to be the elephant in the room. Um, I think you've said that around 30% of COVID cases uh, may suffer long-term symptoms. I've seen even higher estimates uh, than that. Um, what do we know about long COVID in Vermont and its implications for our healthcare system in the coming years? So we're learning a lot about long-term COVID and in Vermont. Um, the rates that I've quoted are 10 to 30% of people who have had COVID, at least Delta and before, don't know what Omicron will do to that equation, especially in a vaccinated population. Fortunately, the statistics for our youth, even those pre-vaccine, are much lower than the 10 to 30%. They may be in the 4 or 5% range, but we're learning. We have uh, worked in a concerted fashion with the University of Vermont uh, in a research project to try to understand this better, but it's just embarking, so we can't give you any new news yet about what we've learned. But Long COVID is not something that's very pleasant. People discuss this brain fog phenomenon. They discuss profound fatigue, exercise intolerance, shortness of breath, you name it. And those can't be pleasant things to live with three plus months after you thought you were done with COVID. So there's going to be a pandemic of long COVID for sure that our country has to deal with effectively. And I can't tell you as much as I want to about Vermont, but I can assure you that we shouldn't be that much different than all the statistics that are being raised, uh, at least pre-vaccine for that population. Hopefully with our extraordinary vaccination rate leading the country in so many categories, we will have uh, flattened that curve uh, significantly just because people have been more protected. Well, and this would be great news. This is, you know, circling back to where we began and in, in talking about how this may evolve into something more like a flu or a cold. Long COVID is the exception to that rule. It's why you don't want to get COVID because this is something that we just don't know. And it seems to be affecting a lot of people. Exactly. I, I couldn't say it better. But the hope is, again, with something like Omicron, if it truly produces less severe illness and if it occurs in vaccinated people with a very mild and short illness, that 
the sequela of long COVID will not be occurring in those individuals. And I think that's because their major organs are protected. That's what vaccine does. It allows the virus to get into our nose and maybe someone else's nose because we transmitted it that way, but it doesn't impact our lungs. It doesn't impact other major organs and we're protected from getting not only serious outcomes that are immediate like hospitalization, but serious outcomes that are more long-term as well. That's, that's, the, that's the wish. I want to talk about uh, our hospital capacity and what is going on. Um, we um, are operating in a region, in the New England region, which is in crisis. Uh, in Rhode Island, the president of the Association of Emergency Physicians warned in a letter to, to the governor last week that, quote, any added strain right now will lead to the collapse of the healthcare system. That's in Rhode Island. That's a couple hours drive. Uh, in Vermont, uh, UVM Medical Center and Dartmouth-Hitchcock have canceled and postponed surgeries. Um, and, you know, I'm hearing anecdotally of friends who have had relatives die because they couldn't get timely care for medical problems. Um, is our system in Vermont and the region strained to the breaking point? And what is Vermont's worst case plan for keeping hospitals functioning in this situation? These are great questions. Um, I want to give some perspective first. Most of the hospital business, even when they were getting more COVID business, was not COVID business. You know, less than 10% of hospital beds were occupied by COVID patients who were there for COVID. In the ICU, at the most, around 20% of beds were occupied by COVID when we got to the worst of Delta. And as I've told you, those have come down significantly since then. Um, somewhat mysteriously, but we'll take that. Most of the business is either deferred medical care, people who were afraid to connect with the healthcare system or just couldn't during this pandemic, or uh, lack of prevention, um, or screening, or chronic diseases that were just getting out of control uh, because of the stress of the pandemic. So we're seeing a lot of that business, along with surgeries that were deferred, that is occupying hospital beds. And that's what's causing the crisis, if you will. COVID is just sort of uh, the straw that breaks the camel's back, but it's not the major cause of business. But our agency of human services, we've been working very hard on a three-pronged strategy as a preventive. Number one is prevention. So we've been making sure that monoclonal antibodies as an effective treatment for Delta were out there everywhere and we were delivering them anytime they needed to be to Vermonters because right. that keeps people out of the hospital. Although not with Omicron, two of the three monoclonal treatments right. don't work against Omicron. Right, but we'll have, we'll, we'll have as much as they'll give us of the one that does work, believe me. Um, we also, for our preventive strategy, use boosters. And we've gotten a booster rate really high, but as I keep telling people, it's not high enough. We need to go even higher. Second prong of the strategy was really making sure that hospitals didn't have so many patients in them that didn't need hospital care anymore 
and could be discharged if they had the right setting for their care. So that involved opening up nursing home and rehab bed uh, capacity around the state. And the reason there was no capacity was not because there weren't beds in many facilities. It was because there were no staff to take care of the patients who would occupy those beds. We've done a tremendous amount of work getting staffing for those facilities. We've had well over 100 people get discharged from our hospitals that didn't really need to be in the hospital anymore. They were occupying beds because they required care, not because they required intense uh, resources for an illness. They required care that couldn't be provided at home. So that was the second prong. And the third prong was really opening up some new ICU capacity, which has been around 10 beds across the state. Again, providing staffing where staffing didn't exist. And um, creating, if we needed, a surge site, which the National Guard, literally with a snap of a finger over a course of days, could construct and have ready for us to utilize if we needed to offload more patients from hospitals. So all that has been happening behind the scenes and been very effective in coming to the aid of our hospitals, as well as taking some of the patients in the emergency rooms who for reasons of mental health usually were boarding in those emergency rooms because there was nowhere for them to go. And we've created capacity for them as well. So a lot has been happening in that realm but you're, you're really asking, what if things really get bad during Omicron? So first thing is hospitals have been able to toggle almost like with an off-on switch on their elective surgeries. So they have been able to cut those when they need to and allow them when they could, could maintain them. So they're going to need to continue to do that. And they know how to do that very, very well we're gonna need to continue to make sure that there's adequate staff because as Omicron becomes more prominent, we all know that healthcare workers are not immune, even if highly vaccinated, some of them are gonna get ill, which will impact those facilities. So we need to make sure that we can provide the staffing for those facilities and use the new CDC guidance that came out before the guidance we were talking about earlier that allows healthcare workers who have become asymptomatic to get back to work using their PPE and protecting patients in a more timely fashion. And then we need to make sure that our hospitals are all communicating well with one another. And we're creating the structures for that so that if there's a need for a patient to get into a ICU bed or a hospital bed, we have eyes on the entire system. And no matter where in the state that person is, they can get to the right bed because we know that hospitals outside of Vermont will not be available to us. Let me, um, we have just a short time left and I want to, uh, one of the things I always find uh, most instructive that helps cut to the chase is asking you about your own personal practices uh, when it comes to navigating just uh, life and uh, in the pandemic. So uh, we're uh, approaching New Year's What's the most number of people you're willing to get together with in a social setting indoors right now? A handful. Okay. Is a handful 10? No, it's one hand. (laughs) One hand. Okay. So five or less. Five or less. Yeah. 
And, you, and I have to say, until this point, the most has been about four or five. Uh, are you willing to, to board an airplane to take a flight? I have to be honest. We were headed to Memphis um, pre-Christmas um, to get together with our daughter, her family, our new granddaughter. And we Congratulations. canceled trip. You canceled we, it. We, we canceled the trip because of the fact that not only my work was going to be becoming very busy again, uh, not that it hasn't been, but mostly because we felt that timing was very poor. Going out to a restaurant indoors. Yeah, I generally still support all my favorite restaurants by takeout. Um, do you wear a mask when now, you know, we often see you with these, you know, with the governor and others not masked, but uh, are you typically masked in most indoor settings that you're in? Yeah. In fact, at our press conferences, we all mask now. We've been doing that for at least a month now. Uh, but um, most people are hearing us. They're not seeing us. But we are we are fully masked at that setting. But, yeah, I, uh, I would be uh, tremendously embarrassed, uh, which has happened once or twice when I run into a uh, retail establishment and have forgotten my mask. I generally have to turn around and go back to the car and uh, fish it out because uh, I do wear it uh, in public settings as we recommend. And finally, you know, we, we're hearing a lot about uh, burnout among healthcare providers. What do you do? Uh, and, and I imagine the intensity of this job for you is significant. What do you do to keep yourself sane in these times? Well, my wife does a really good job of making sure that I don't go any night of the week, no matter what time I get home, without a nice dinner that she's prepared which is really helpful. It's a nice sort of chill out time and uh, enjoy something good. Um, I exercised almost every day for at least a half hour if I can. It's usually before the day gets started, which I think gets the endorphins up, which is really important because they carry through through the rest of the day. And I work in a great place. I have a great health department and I'm inspired constantly by the dedication of the people that work here and their real sacrifice that they make every day to keep Vermonters safe. So all that helps tremendously. Then I watch a little bit of TV at night when I have a chance just to just get my brain off of everything. All right. Well, Dr. Mark Levine, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation and have a happy and healthy new year. Same to you, David. Thank you. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.